welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Genesis 33 is where we're going to be. And in this chapter in Genesis, we're going to focus on the theme of reconciliation, this concept of being reconciled to God and also to other people. That's what we're going to focus on. Uh, Some people might say reconciliation. That's a big fancy word. Why do you have to use that word? Well, the Bible uses, many English translations use the word reconciled or reconciliation or sometimes restored. So we're going to use that word this morning and try and understand it a little bit better. The Cambridge Dictionary defines relational reconciliation. So reconciliation between people this way. It says, it's a situation in which two people or groups of people become friendly again after they have argued. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines to be reconciled as to restore to friendship or harmony. The Bible often tells true stories about people being reconciled or restored to one another. Stories where friends or family are alienated from one another, sometimes escalating to be even becoming enemies for long periods of time. But then through an unexpected twist, the feuding parties are brought together again and which results in their friendship once again. Genesis 33 concludes one of these types of stories. The scriptures have a, have a lot to say about reconciliation, and much of what it has to say is shocking. Sometimes it's offensive, and many times it seems impossible what the scripture demands. The type of reconciliation it, it, it demands of us. It even shocks sometimes mature Christians, what God expects of us. So as we come to this passage of Scripture and as, what we, as we look at what the New Testament further goes on to reveal about what God calls His people to, um, as we do this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask Him to, to show us in His Word the truth so that the truth, His truth, can renew our minds, which then He says, if that happens, if our minds and our hearts are renewed by His truth, then it will transform our lives. So let's go to him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would bless the reading of your word and the teaching of your word, the explanation, and also the proclamation of how great our God is. Would you use it this morning as we sit here in the dark, and would you change, change our souls, our hearts? Would you change our minds? So, Lord, that our lives can be transformed, transformed into to to lives that look like Jesus walking around here in George, taking care of our families, working, sharing the good news of what God has done in us and what he has promised to do for all those who come to him by grace and faith. Lord, I I pray that you would uh, bless our time together now. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, let's look at Jacob's reconciliation in this chapter. So we're going to focus on the chapter. We're going to read through it. And this time, as, as, as usual, I'm going to just pause at certain points, help give a little bit of explanation of what's going on and maybe some application. And we'll go all the way through the chapter together. Um, as a brief reminder, first, though, Jacob has been delivered by God from the hand of Laban. So looking back now where we've come from, 
He's been delivered from Laban, and he is now traveling south toward Canaan in order to return to the land of his father as God commanded him to do. So he's on a God-commanded mission now to get back to Canaan and his family. Those were God's words. But as he travels south, he realizes that he must be reconciled to his older brother Esau. So he sends messengers ahead of him to announce his arrival and, and to announce his arrival to Esau. And Esau's response is to hasten north to meet Jacob. So Esau is far to the south. He's outside the promised land. And when he gets this message that Jacob is traveling south to come to Canaan, when Esau hears this, he starts traveling north to meet him. All right. It's not a problem, but the problem that, that starts to scare Jacob is that Esau decides to bring 400 men with him. And that day, that was kind of like your local militia size. So it's kind of like he, he rounded up the local militia, the local war band, and he starts heading north with this war party, is what it sounds like at least, to come meet Jacob. This terrifies Jacob, so he divides his family into different groups, sends them south, further south across the Jabbok River, while he stays on the safe side of the river, in the complete rear of the family. So what we have is Jacob's the furthest north, then he's pushed his family in between him and Esau, and Esau's racing north. So that's where we're at in the story. That night... God attacks Jacob in human form while he's, he's in, the, in his tent all by himself hanging out in the safe side of the river. But God attacks him in human form and they wrestle throughout the night, ultimately resulting in Jacob having a permanent lip. God touched his hip and knocked it out of joint. And Jacob now has a permanent limp from this. But he's also blessed by God with a new name. The name Israel, which we saw means that God fights. Or later we will see it means, and it's emphasizing that God fights for you. God fights for Israel. Genesis 32 says that after the wrestling match, Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered or spared. And then Genesis 32 tells us, the sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. This is where we pick up our story of reconciliation in Genesis 33 now. We, we see that Jacob has been humbled by the mercy of God and by the weakness of his own body. Let's pick up reading in Genesis 33. Can you, can you hear me in the back all right? Yes. All right, thank you. Genesis 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her, with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. We might be thinking, what is he doing here? Well, Jacob is still Jacob. He's putting his least favorite wives and children in the front of the procession while leaving his favorite, Rachel and Joseph, in the back where they might have more time to escape if Esau really is intent on attacking them. So Jacob's still Jacob. But notice in the next verse what has changed. 
and how Jacob is becoming Israel, this, this person who believes and trusts that God is the one who fights for him. Verse 3, this is how he's changed. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So before Jacob hid in the back on the safe side of the river, putting his family in between him and the danger, but now he leads his family in the front and he's going to be the first to face whatever danger might come. And as a sign of his humility and abundant respect for Esau, he bows seven times to the ground, which is an extreme sign of respect and reverence, which was normally reserved for the pharaohs or for kings. So here we have Jacob. He's humble. He's limping. He's broken. Maybe he didn't have a chance to change his clothes and his clothes are like ripped from this all night long wrestling match with God and he's bleeding and he's battered. This is where we pick up in verse 4 as he's bowing to the ground, coming and approaching Esau. Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? He's, he's talking about in chapter 32, I believe we saw all the, the procession of animals, these droves of animals that Jacob sent in front of him as gifts to Esau. So Esau's saying, what do you mean by all these different droves of all, this, all these animals? Jacob answered, I sent those to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. So let's stop there and let's, let's look at just a couple key takeaways from the verses we've read so far. First, Jacob is humble and respectful of Esau. Jacob is not claiming his rights as the firstborn son by blessing and by birthright. He's not, he's not claiming that or demanding that. He's not trying to, be, to assert himself as the ruler of the family, which he could have legally. Instead, he is choosing to call himself a servant and call Esau his Lord. So this is his extreme humility and respect for the one he has offended. Second, Jacob seems to be attempting to restore what he stole from Esau by giving of his own physical wealth to Esau, returning the stolen birthright. Remember that story all those weeks ago? And he also seems to be attempting to return the blessing on Esau, at least to the best of his ability, because Jacob stole Esau's blessing as well. So we saw how he stole the birthright and he stole the blessing from Esau. So the reason it, it seems like that's what he's trying to do is because like notice his words in this chapter. He says, please accept my present. So all this wealth. So in the birthright and the blessing, we're talking about position and wealth. So he says, please accept my present, all these animals. And then he says, please accept my blessing. That's kind of a strange 
turn of words, but I believe he's saying this for, for, the, for the sake of trying to show Esau that he wants to return, restore what he has stolen. The primary offense in Esau's mind was the stealing of the position and wealth that came with the birthright and the blessing, both of which now Jacob is attempting to return to Esau. He is saying, I have wronged you and I am doing to the best of my ability. I'm, I'm attempting at the best of my ability to restore or return what I have stolen. Third, we should notice and, and to help us understand what's going on here. When Esau accepts the gift from Jacob in their legal and, and societal norms, when he accepts the gift... Esau is testifying that his legal right to revenge is now gone and that Jacob was fully restored to him. So that's why sometimes we see people giving animals to other rulers and saying, we're at peace. But he gives some kind of animal to them to say, now there's physical living proof on your property, on your land that you accepted from my hand. And everyone saw this. It's a public testimony that we are at peace. So that's, that's what's going on here. And we saw that Esau does accept the gift and they are restored. This truly is a beautiful scene. These are two alienated brothers. We're talking about 20 years that Esau would have had to just gnaw on this and to grow in bitterness. But these two alienated brothers are now reconciled. And we saw how, how Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and welcomed him. Surely, as we look at Jacob's response as well. So we're focusing on, yes, this is a beautiful scene. These two brothers are reconciled to one another. And as we think about Jacob, we're like, yes, Jacob is finally becoming Israel. He is now, he's now like, what's the word? He is, uh, he's broken of all his former ways of being a liar and a thief and all of this. And we're like, finally, he's becoming Israel. The one who trusts that God is the one who fights for him. God is the one who sees to it. We saw that in the life of Abraham. But unfortunately, bad habits are hard to break. Even if God has just met with you, we still have this tendency just to slip back into our old ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. And that's what we're going to see in the next verses that take us through to the end of the chapter. Verse 12. Then Esau said... Let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So uh, Esau saying, Come home with me to Edom or specifically Seir, come back south with me. And Jacob's, and Jacob's now giving reasons. He says, yeah, I'll follow. I'll follow behind you slower, just slower. Verse 15. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob Notice this, verse 17. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. So 
Esau is coming from the south. He's traveling north. Jacob's traveling south. They meet here near the Jabbok River. All right. Esau says, come with me back home with me. And Jacob's like, I got to go slower than all you and your, your war band. I've, I've got to move slower. I've got animals and little children. We'll, we'll meet you at your home in Seir. But as soon as Esau is released, like, you know, he's, he's pacified and he's like, okay, well, I won't leave any people with you and I'll, I'll just go on ahead. As soon as he's gone, Jacob heads west. Away, you know, like away from where he said he would just go. And he's headed back towards the promised land. So, so what's going on here? Um, the problem is, is that Seir is outside the promised land and God has commanded Jacob to return there. Also, Jacob most likely has no desire for, to go from serving pagan Laban up here. He's just been suffering under Laban, who's a pagan. And now he's gonna, is he going to go south to godless Esau? We've already seen that, that Esau has no regard for God. And even in all the, the, the verses we've read, he never once references God. As the one who's given him increase or he's taken care of his brother or has restored them at no point. So the passage implies that Esau is godless. Godless. So Jacob rightly chooses not to go with Esau, but he doesn't come out and speak the truth about this. Instead, Jacob makes excuses about the little children and the livestock being tired. And Jacob finally convinces Esau to leave without him, which then gives him the chance to sneak away. We've seen Jacob sneak away a couple times now. But this gives him the chance to sneak away to the west, heading toward Canaan. So once again, Jacob resorts to deceit. But there's another issue. Once the heat of the moment is past, Jacob seems to relax a little more. He seems to relax into his old ways and he settles down outside Canaan in a place called Succoth. This is on the, on the, if I get this right, east side of the Jordan River. So he builds a house in Succoth and he builds sheds for his animals. And apparently he's looking to increase his herds in the fertile fields east of the Jordan River. Where we know the last thing God commanded him to do was to go back to Canaan to his father's, to his kindred, to his father's house. So the passage doesn't come out and say it blatantly, but amid this beautiful reconciliation we just saw between him and Esau, Jacob still seems to be relying on some of his old ways of thinking. When the situation calls for it, he is still employing lies, deceit, this delay, this almost this half-hearted obedience. God said, go back, and he's now living in a, in outside the land for a while. And the, the passage seems to be teaching us or encouraging us that although this is a beautiful scene of reconciliation, it's, it still seems to be pointing us to Jacob's half-hearted obedience and often his questionable morals, how he's playing favorites with his family, how he's half-heartedly obeying God, and how he has now employed deceit that these are not things that we should employ in our lives, but instead that when we're living this way, warning bells should be going off. And we're going to see in chapter 34 how things don't turn out so well for Jacob's family. Some of the fault is going to be on Jacob and on, on the, 
the favoritism and the other things that he's been doing in his own family, how he's been leading his own family, not wholeheartedly following God. But let's read the end of the chapter here, um, verse 18, picking up there. Uh, The story is going to end with Jacob crossing the Jordan River, and he's going to set up camp near a Philistine city, verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, that's where Laban lived. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. Then he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This chapter ends with another beautiful picture. Jacob crossed the Jordan River, finally. He's entered back into Canaan as God promised he would. God said, I will bring you back to this place and I will be with you throughout all your wanderings. He then erects an altar to God, calling it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Jacob identified God as the fear of Isaac before. We saw that in previous chapters. He says, if the, if the fear of Isaac, his father, had not been with him, he's, talking, he's giving that as a name for God previously. But now, as God's promise to him is fulfilled, and he steps back into the land, he builds a, a testament to God being his God, the God of Israel. And so this is supposed to be a beautiful scene. Where he says, God is my God. God is the God who fights for me. That's what he's saying as he enters back into the land. It's supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be stirring. But this scene isn't all good news. Like with most stories involving humans, it's a mixture of of obedience and faithfulness. But even Christians, stories about Christians, it, it tends to be a mixture of the faithfulness to God, but also of our own weakness. In the trial, our own our own failings with our own temptations and struggles. So we we see here that this scene isn't all good news because we know that God told him to go back to the land and to his kindred. So God wanted him to rejoin, I believe, as we look at God's command, God wanted him to rejoin his father, Isaac, further to the south. He wanted him to go through Bethel the place where God had met him before, and he wanted him to travel south to his father Isaac and dwell with his kindred. God had said, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. That's Genesis 31, verse 3. It seems like God's intent was for him to travel further south and to move on to his his family. But what we've just seen is that Jacob is conflicted. He is praising God and proclaiming that God is his God. He is El Elohe Israel. But at the same time, he's choosing to remain outside the promised land for a period of of time. He stayed on the wrong side of the Jordan, replenishing his flocks. And then he finally, when he does finally move into the promised land, he sets up his tent in front of a pagan city rather than continuing on to his own family. And the language here is very similar to the language that we saw in Lot's life. How he set up his tent in front of Sodom. So this is a very similar language, and I believe it's not going too far to, to interpret this to mean the passage is implying that, that Jacob hasn't quite completely obeyed God. His heart isn't completely determined to follow God immediately and fully. 
So I, would, I believe that is a fair understanding of this text. And next week we'll look at some of the consequences of Jacob's half-hearted obedience and the effect it has on his family. But for now, we'll focus on the restoration, on this restoration to Esau. Let's focus in on this. In this biblical account of, res- of reconciliation, Jacob begins to show signs of spiritual growth. We can, we can say, Jacob, if you've been with us as we've been preaching through the life of Jacob, you can honestly say, we saw some growth here. Like, you know, he's humble. The way he's talking, the way he's praising God, we saw some growth. He's seeking to undo past wrongs. And he's boldly claiming that God is his God. But what we know is that Jacob still isn't the hero of this story. That's the way we like to read Old Testament stories, Old Testament narrative. We like to, to see, oh, it's David. Oh, he's slinging this, these stones at his enemies. I'm going to be just like David when he chases down Goliath. And I understand it can encourage us as we read about other fallen humans having boldness and faithfulness to our God. But the true hero of this story um, throughout the past few chapters, and I'd argue throughout the whole Bible, is God. Because God is the one who brought Jacob out of slavery to Laban. God is the one who wrestled with Jacob and humbled him. And God is the one who spared his life when he met Esau. God is at work in the life of Jacob. He's molding him and shaping him through adversity. And when Jacob responds to what God is doing, so God meets him and molds him through adversity. When when Jacob responds to God's activity with faith, humility, and praise, when Jacob does this, then the goodness of God shines through Jacob's life the brightest. Let's be honest with one another. Jacob hasn't been an easy person to like. As you read his story in the Bible, I mean, it's not easy for me to like him. After all, he's a heel-snatching, backstabbing deceiver by nature. That's what we've read about for weeks in the life of Jacob. But if there ever was a time I wanted to like Jacob... Then it was when the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip, going before his family, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near in humility to the one he had offended, his offended brother. That's when I was when I wanted to like Jacob. That's my favorite moment in the life of Jacob. When he is humble before both God and man. When he is ready and willing to seek reconciliation with anyone he has offended. That's the highlight for me in Jacob's life. But when we turn our perspective around and look at the situation from Jacob's point of view. I mean, we've been we've been looking at this from the outside, you know, thousands of years later and we're saying like yeah that was a great time in Jacob's life but if you turn your perspective around and you look at the situation from Jacob's perspective then all of a sudden it doesn't feel like a high point in his life think about it imagine the scene with me Jacob is 97 years old right now I understand most of you are probably thinking of 30 year old Jacob you know he's been wrestling with God you know he's in his prime He's 97 years old. And yes, he will live to be 100 and 
Uh, I'm like, oh man, now I'm gonna. Sorry. Thank you. I was about to say 40. And I was like, 147. Thank you. So yes, he lives longer than us. I understand this. But still, he is 97 years old and he has just wrestled with God in human form all night. He is bruised and battered. Every muscle in his body aches. I mean, if you've wrestled for two minutes at 100%, your body hurts. We heard about that last week. It hurts just to wrestle for two minutes with 100% effort. He wrestled all night with God. Every muscle in his body aches, and although he had been blessed with long life and a healthy body up until this point, now his hip has gone out and he walks with a limp. Put into the context of our lifespan, so if you just do the numbers, this is like this would be like a very healthy 60-year-old man who was fit enough to spend the long winter nights in the field caring for the sheep, but now in one wrestling match, his body is broken. And the good years seem to be behind him. Now he has, all he has to look forward to are the years of brokenness where his body fails him. This would not feel like a high point in your life if you were Jacob. Broken, limping, bleeding toward, toward the one who might most likely wants to kill you right now. He had nobody with him. And he had no strength left. And he's limping towards Esau. We don't think of that in the moment as high points in our lives, do we? These are the, the worst of times when we're in that, in that struggle. But looking from the outside with all of Scripture um, to help us, we know that God loves to exalt the lowly and to raise up the one who is bowed down. That's Psalm 145, verse 14. We know that God's power is made perfect when? When I am perfect? It's not what the passage says. God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses. That's 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. We also know that God opposes the proud but gives grace, his unmerited favor to the humble. That's James 4, verse 10. So now let's transition. Let's ask, ask ourselves the question, are we reconciled? So this is, this, we've just been focusing on Jacob's reconciliation. But as Christians, we look at the book as a mirror and we, we see ourselves, God's pointing to us and saying, look at who God is and look at who you are and walk away from the mirror of my word changed. So that's always the goal when we come to the word is that we walk away from seeing the mirror changed more into the likeness of Christ. So at now as we transition, I ask the question, are you reconciled? When you back, look back over the course of your life, you can rem probably remember times when you were humbled like Jacob has just been humbled. I remember times like this. Now, I didn't wrestle with God, but sometimes in my soul, I felt like I was wrestling with God and like every man on earth was against me. Sometimes there's times where we, we have probably felt that way. Times when your pride was finally broken and you were willing to confess to anyone who needed to hear it that you are weak and in need of daily forgiveness from both God and other men. You were like, listen, guys, I'm broken. I'm weak. I'm a sinner. 
God, I am, I am just a saved sinner and I need forgiveness all the time. And if I've sinned against you, tell me I'm ready. I'm ready. You, you probably, I hope, I hope you felt that way before in your Christian walk. I hope you have. This acceptance of our own weakness and willingness to confess our neediness to both God and man. This is how God desires for his children to live before him and their fellow man every day. That's God's desire for us. He doesn't just desire for us to be humble and needy and and acknowledging of our own weaknesses during like a one week period of our life or or at, at certain just high points in our life or low points in our life. No, God desires that this is the way his children live every day. But this is not how we want to live. Can I get an amen from anybody? <laughs> this is not how we want to live. I don't want to live this in this lowly way where, I'm, where I, I feel the crushing burden of my own neediness before God and my, my, my lowness as I look to my left, to my right, to my front, my back, of the people around me where I'm like, I'm no better than them. It is but by the grace of God that anything good is in my life. But we don't like that, do we? By nature. I'm talking about by nature. By the old nature. We love to live our lives from positions of power. Perfection. I don't like ever admitting I'm wrong. And we love to live our lives from strength. Power. Perfection. Strength. Oh, how we love to control situations and have our own way. We are professionals at pointing the finger at other people's flaws and weaknesses. We've been professionals since we were seven years old. Even my five-year-old is a professional at coming and telling me the weaknesses of their sibling. And we carry that on into our adult lives. But how many Christians daily examine, confess, and repent of their own failure to be perfect as God is perfect? That's God's standard. He says, be perfect as I am perfect. Jesus says, be perfect as my heavenly Father is. None of us have met that standard And it is a heavy weight to realize that we are not perfect as God demands us to be perfect. And I would encourage you if you're like, whoa, like that's a scary thing to say to me. I'd encourage you that we find that perfection in another. We find that perfection that allows us to walk with confidence before the throne of God in in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And that is the only way you can be perfect as God is perfect. You cannot do it. So if you are scared by that statement, no, there is hope. But moving on with this thought of how we do not like to live lives of humility... We must realize that God calls his people, the church, to humble themselves before him so that he can lift us up. We are in the business of lifting ourselves up. But God says, go low in humility before me and other humans, other human beings. Be humble 
And I, God says, I will lift you up. I will exalt you. James writes to a church in in the New Testament. James writes to Christians. And he's writing to Christians who have become puffed up with pride and self-righteousness. And he says to them in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 12, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before, yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And then he gives some practical ways. This church needed to stop being proud and arrogant and self-righteous. He says in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He's talking about this just gossiping and this tearing one another down. Not looking to be part of the solution, just looking to tear down another person so I can exalt myself above them. They're a wicked sinner. I am this. He says, do not do that. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. He's saying that this is messed up, that you've been forgiven by the judge. And now you're sitting saying like, dirty, rotten, sinner. He's saying, how can you do that when the judge has forgiven you all of this? Then he goes on to talk about this judge. He says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. He's talking about God. God is the only one who can save, and God is the one who ultimately destroys. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He's talking about these areas where it's either gray areas in Scripture, areas of freedom. God has not spoken on these things. He's talking about you don't know what's going on in the situation. And he's talking about those who, although a brother might be in sin, you don't go running to them, looking to restore them to the family. No, you go to someone else and you rip them apart behind their backs. I'm I'm using the word you, but I have done this. I have done this. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This doesn't mean we can't make decisions about God's word and and go to another brother and say, brother, sister, God says, the judge says you're in sin. Be restored to him. We're pleading with them to be restored. We're not making judgment calls about whether this is moral or not. God says it's immoral. Be restored to the judge so that when the day of wrath comes, his wrath does not fall on you. That's what we do as Christians. Peter adds to our understanding of humility by emphasizing Christian love. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, he's trying to emphasize this. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Think about the sins that have been covered by Christ's love for you. Think about all those sins And you're like, oh yeah, this is a true statement. Love does cover a multitude of sins. 
And Peter says, now that you have been forgiven all of those sins, let love, just the love of Christ that is now in you, wash away the bitterness, wash away the anger, wash away your right for revenge. How many small wrongs would be covered if Christians humbled themselves under the weight of all that Jesus has forgiven them of, followed by an earnest love for his blood-bought people. God says, if you do not love your brothers, but you say you love God, then you are a liar. Those are God's words in the scriptures. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you are a liar. And you don't belong to God. That's what he says is how seriously God takes our relationship between man and man, woman and woman, father and to, to, to children and husband to wife and wife to children. This is how seriously God takes these relationships. Paul gives even greater clarity by descri- describing the, the significance, the importance of love and describing this type of love. So this is how important it is, and this is what it looks like. This is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8. He's, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So he just used, If I have powerful preaching, or powerful speech filled with the Spirit from human perspective. But I don't love the one I'm speaking to, or I don't love them. Then it's like you just walked up with a gong, and you walked up to the side of their ear, and you just smashed that gong in their ear. That's what loveless speech or preaching is. It's nothing but pain in the ears of the hearer. He says in verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers and extend all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, this powerful Christian, but have not love, I am nothing. This is how these Christians were identifying themselves through their powerful signs and powerful speech. But he says, if you have not love, you are nothing. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, you're the most generous person who ever lived. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, you are a martyr who walks into the arena to be burned in front of a Roman crowd jeering for your faith. He says, if I do that, but have not love, I gain nothing. You have gained nothing with your fellow man and you have gained nothing with God. He's going to describe what love should be. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is... From 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8. I, I encourage you, if you're struggling at all with this, with what we're t- talking about today, please go back and evaluate yourself by these lists and see if there's anything that needs to be cleansed from your heart. 
Church, I am convinced that the only way we can be a reconciled church to one another and we can be a a reconciling church where we're bringing other people to God, the only way we can do this is if we have humility before God and man combined with this love that never ends. Not just saying we love God, but we love other broken sinners. But brothers and sisters, the truth is is that we all struggle with this more than we realize. I struggle with this more than I realize. And even when I think that I've got it figured out and I'm just loving God and loving people, five years later, I'll look back at that time in my life and I was just like, I was so proud and arrogant in the way I spoke, the way I acted. Dear God, forgive me. That's the reality for all of us. I do believe some of you are far ahead of me in this area of loving God and loving neighbor. Praise the Lord for your example. But we all still are blinded by our need to be humble before God and man and to love with an endless love. We are not humble before God and man. We love to sit around drinking coffee and talking about how sinful so-and-so is. Rather than as a church gathering on our knees, confessing our own weaknesses, temptations, and struggles to love God and people. We don't like gathering on our knees and confessing our own brokenness. That is only something that happens by the power of the Spirit in us, changing us, making us like Christ. Instead, we love by nature, by our sinful nature, we love to sit around and boast, which means brag to other people about how we have served the Lord. We love to tell other people about how I've served God. And oh, I had this super difficult situation. And I just, I just swooped in and I... But oh, how slow we are to praise the ones who have poured out their lives for us to raise us up. We don't give credit to the ones all around us who've been dragging us forward in our Christian life. Those who, who have served us as if they were our slaves, demanding neither payment nor, nor thanks, and they're just servants of God, slaves to men for the sake of Christ. We are so slow to praise or thank people. If this kind of arrogance, pride, and self-righteousness dominates our hearts and minds, if it does, then I'm afraid we will fail in God's commission to us to be His ambassadors in this world. Why? Why is this so important that we be humble and loving? We saw what happens if you're not talking in love, so, so that's pretty clear. But we also need to realize that That Paul tells us that God has entrusted to us the message of what? What message does he call it in 2 Corinthians 5? He calls it the message of reconciliation. We have been given by God the message to to others to go be reconciled to God and your fellow man. That's what we're supposed to be going out and proclaiming to this lost world. But how can we do that if we are filled with arrogance, pride, and self-righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 20, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. That is, he's going to explain it in different words. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, the church, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, and this is scary, this scares me. God making his appeal through us. That's 2 Corinthians 5. God making his appeal through us. Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That is the message of hope. God has made a way so you can be restored to him. And God has given us that message, made us his ambassadors, ambassadors, and he makes his appeal through human lips. And the written word, that's how God has chosen to send out this message of hope. How could we, but how could we ever go to our lost neighbors, family, and friends with this message of restoration if we are not living in humility and love with our own family members first? It starts with your family first, and then it goes out even further to the household of God. So if we are not reconciled here first, I'd actually prefer that you didn't go out and begin Proclaiming reconciliation to the rest of the world because I'm afraid it's going to be nothing more than clanging bells in their ears because we are hypocrites. Be reconciled to God and to your fellow man. But back home or in the church, we're ripping one another apart, tearing one another apart. I'm not saying that that is the case right now, but we all know that this is by nature what we would do, what we are tempted to do. If you attempt to call people to repentance from an attitude of pride, self-righteousness, or even just religious duty, God says, I have to do it. I don't really love them. If you attempt to do it through that, then you will be no more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal in their ears and in the ears of God. If you don't have love, Paul says, all your wisdom, theological study, all your mighty deeds for God, all of them amount to nothing in the sight of God. Even if I go to the arena to be burned alive for my theological convictions, I've got them all lined up. I know what theology, what theology says, what God says is truth. But if I do it without love, and I don't love my fellow man, then I gain nothing. So what does God de demand of his blood-bought people? This, I understand. This, this may feel heavy right now. So we never just want people to walk out of church, oh, I'm, I'm guilty. Oh, well, what's, what sports is on today? You know, like, that's never the goal. The goal is to see ourselves in the mirror of God's word and to be changed. So what does God demand from his people? He, he demands that since he has reconciled us to himself, through the humiliation and death of his holy son. That because of that, that we would humble ourselves now before God and man. That we would let genuine love transform our every thought, 
word, and deed. How do we do this? Well, if you know that you are guilty, as I had to realize this week, then first we should seek, begin by seeking God's forgiveness for attitudes of pride, self-righteousness, or bitterness. Humbly seeking God's forgiveness for, no, for, for, for known sins must be part of a Christian's daily life. This isn't something that just happened once when you were saved from the wrath of God and hell so that you can be with Him in eternity. No, God says this is part of the life of a Christian is seeking God's forgiveness for known sins that have not yet been confessed. Not so that we can be re-saved from hell, no. But we're seeking His forgiveness as our Father Saying, Father, I've sinned against you and others. I want to be restored in fellowship. I don't want there to be a barrier between me and you or me and my fellow brother. No, I want those barriers to be broken down. I want to be reconciled to you today for known sins. That is the daily life of a Christian. But we cannot stop there. We cannot stop at just talking to God about our sins. Because your fellowship with God is not restored or reconciled until you have sought to be restored to your fellow man to the best of your ability. And this is where it gets hard. It's pretty easy to shoot off a prayer to God and say, God, I messed up there. My attitude is wrong. Please forgive me. We move on. But you cannot claim to have a right relationship with God if you are proud, self-righteous, or bitter toward your fellow man. I think that's pretty clear in the passages we read today. And sometimes it's easier to be restored to God than it is to be restored to other sinners. It's easier to be humble and loving toward our almighty Savior. It's like, yeah, you are, you are great and strong and you are perfect. I humble myself before you. But God says you have not practiced true humility or love until you are living it toward your fellow man. As we saw in the life of Jacob, reconciliation or restoration is Costly. It usually is painful. Personal testimony time. It's painful. I sometimes feel like I'm going to die if I go through with this. But then I have to remember that the scriptures say you will have to die to yourself. Giving up your own pride and self-love in order to be reconciled. To God and your fellow man. You will have to die to self. As we saw in the life of Jacob. As an encouragement though. When he was humble. Limping. Bowing. Broken before the power. And yet mercy of almighty God. And humble before the brother he had offended. When, when, when Jacob was there. That's when we could see. Christ in him the clearest so be encouraged by that that even though it hurts it's painful it's costly to seek out restoration even though you may feel like you're going to have to die this feels like death on the inside to be restored be encouraged that in the life of Jacob we could see it clearly that Christ was in him in that moment so with this in mind, we have the, the privilege of sharing communion together, the Lord's table. And uh, this is a meal. It's a reminder for believers only. So we ask that if that you, you, you just let the, the cup and the bread pass by you. If you are not a believer in Jesus, 
Or if you simply aren't quite sure what it even means to be born again or to be saved or to have this type of reconciliation with God, what it means to be reconciled to God. If you're unsure of that, I'd love to have the chance to explain what that means. Um, or you could talk to the person who brought you here, with, who came with you today. Um, we'd love that opportunity. But for all those who have expressed faith in Christ alone for their salvation, for their cleansing, for to be restored to God, for us, this is a meal of remembrance. Where we remember Jesus' body, the bread represents his body, that was broken, so we break the bread. And we remember his blood that was shed for us. That's why we drink the red juice. It's a meal to remember, but yet also to celebrate Christ's victory on our behalf. But there is also a warning to the church as we come to this table. So it is a great time of rejoicing and of, and of unity and of hope. But it's, there's also a warning that comes to the church. Every, we should be thinking about it every time we come to the table. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns us that this meal is also to, designed to demonstrate our unity and our humility and our love for one another as the body of Christ. Some of you are like, what? You know, like, I've never heard that before. This was just a time to remember Jesus' sacrifice and his body that was broken. But do you remember what he calls the church? He says he is the head of the church and we are individually members of it. He calls us his body. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven through 29, saying this, whoever, and he's saying, whoever's sitting in the church. So these are Christians. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's a, that's a scary thought. So Paul says this in verse 28, let a person, each one of us, Examine himself. Let each person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. These Christians in Corinth, they were, they were eating meals together. They were, some of them were getting drunk at the Lord's table, while other people were sitting there Starving. They were the poor. They were the homeless. So people would bring all their food, their little family over here and their little clique would have a great feast while under the same, in the same area, in the same building. There's people over here who are starving. And they were rejoicing at how godly they were, how, how blessed they were, how, how united they were as a church. Paul says, not so. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Yes, the body of Christ and what Christ has done with us. But don't forget who is his body. It's the people of God. If you come to this table and you're saying, I don't care about these people. I'm bitter at so-and-so. I hate so-and-so. I'm ripping so-and-so apart every time I get at home. If we're doing that, Paul says we drink and eat judgment on ourselves. So what does that mean? Don't eat, the, don't eat 
No, that's not his point. He says, let a person examine, examine himself then, and then eat the bread and drink the cup. Be reconciled, not just to God. Be reconciled to your fellow man, fellow believer, before you eat and drink. So please, take a few moments to remember our Lord's sacrifice. And also to examine your own heart before we take the bread and the cup together. Make sure you are reconciled to both God and your fellow man to the very best of your ability. That means you have gone, you have attempted, you have tried. That's what God expects. The outcome is left in God's hands. But he says, go, attempt to the best of your ability, live at peace with your fellow man. So to the best of your ability... Examine yourself. And if you cannot honestly say that you are reconciled to both God and your fellow believer, then let the cup pass. Let the bread pass. There will be other times for us to have communion together. And when this service is over, run. Run to the one that you need to be reconciled with. This church should be a place where there's a group out here being reconciled in the parking lot. And over here by the crash, there's people in the kitchen over there hanging out saying, brother, I am so sorry. I, I am so weak when it comes sometimes when I, the way I speak. I was harsh. Will you forgive me? That is the church. Not a place for perfect people. I don't belong here. If that's the definition of our church, perfect people gathering together, I don't belong here. It's a place for broken people to be restored to both God and man. That is the church. So please, I beg of you, be restored to both God and man today. Don't let it go another day to the best of your ability. So let's pray together and the men are going to come down to hand out the elements. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, the story of Jacob's reconciliation was a, was a joy to me to see his humility and to be reminded that you are the one who lifts up and exalts the bowed down. When this life has burdened us and broken us and even some of our loved ones are just, are just tearing us down and we feel low, that when we respond in faith, obedience, not anger, but humility and forgiveness, when we do that, you have promised that you will lift us up, that you will give us the victory through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.